Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, the Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. Today, I'm going to bring you someone that's a little different than who you've been used to listening to. Her name is Maureen Haverty, and she is the VP of Investment at a company called Seraphim Space slash Generation Space. We'll talk about how these two relate and uh, what the relationship is between the two. But during the conversation, I think you'll really find interesting. She talks about why now, what has happened to, to make space R&D and manufacturing that much more accessible, uh, who are some of the leading companies, what life sciences is doing in this space, particularly some startups that we should keep an eye on, and then what does the space look like over the next five to 10 years? So I think if you're someone that wants to know what's going to happen in the future, this is definitely in your wheelhouse. Fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. All right. So Maureen, I'm really looking forward to this interview today because not that I know everything about everything healthcare wise, but I know probably a lot less than I should in terms of the world of space and deep tech. And one of the things I love to, you know, always jump into is I want to know how people got to where they are today, right? So um I think I in my questions I asked you a little bit of a, a cheeky question, which was how does one become an investor in space and deep tech? Honestly, for me, it was an incredibly circuitous route. So I have no background originally in space. I did a, or no educational background. I did a PhD in nuclear engineering. And then I worked as a nuclear engineer in research at the National Nuclear Lab in the UK for a couple of years in nuclear fuel performance, which is uh, essentially why does nuclear fuel fail in the reactor? And then I got the opportunity to join Apollo Fusion, which was a startup out in Silicon Valley. It was a nuclear fusion company uh, doing a fission blanket around its fusion core. And I was one of the engineers involved in the design of a fission blanket. And it was a really, really exciting opportunity for me because we really hoped that with our system that we would solve a lot of our problems with electricity generation worldwide. Uh, But we made uh, a lot of commitments to what we wanted the product to be. And that meant that we had some requirements of the fusion system that it had to hit a certain neutron generation rate. We weren't going to get there and we didn't want to take money from investors and a false promise. So we pivoted into space. We took our fusion technology and used it to make propulsion systems for satellites, which are the engines to move satellites around in space. That was in 2017. SpaceX was planning to launch a constellation, OneWeb, really the new space industry. So uh, a space industry led by startups was getting started and we saw a great opportunity and things started to move pretty quickly from there. Then uh, as that happened, I became maybe less of an engineer and more working on business development and product. And I became COO of the company and we were acquired by Astra during the SPAC boom. Astra is a rocket launch company in 2021. 
I joined then in corporate development. At the same time, I was consulting for some family offices and VCs on, you know, their diligence for their nuclear and climate investments. And then I got the opportunity to join Seraphim Space as a VC investor last year. Well, congratulations on a successful, even if it was circuitous trajectory. I think sometimes the best journeys are circuitous. And I can definitely see the connection between the nuclear scientist and being a space you know, scientist and a rocket scientist, as we like to joke here in the U.S. You touched on the, the Seraphim space. And I know that if you go to your website in the U.S., you see generation space. But in your title and in the, um, the URL, you see the Seraphim space. Just talk a little bit about the relationship between those two to help clarify for our audience. Yeah, so we're the same company. In in the rest of the world, we're called Seraphim Space. We were always called Seraphim Space. And in the US, we're called Generation Space. We recently enough in 2022 set up an office in San Francisco. And we have an accelerator program also run out of San Francisco for US and Canadian startups. Uh, we're headquartered in London. We have an investment trust listed on the London Stock Exchange. So that's actually where we invest invest into growth stage startups um, that are listed publicly. And and that's that's about it, really. Yeah, um, invest internationally out of that. Well, that, that's helpful. Thank you for doing that. And I guess you mentioned the startups. And I think a lot of people probably track loosely on what's going on in space they they've seen the whole spacex elon musk you know for he's a lot of things but he's done a lot to bring a a a flashlight to that or a spotlight i should say let's talk a little bit about this macro picture on why space offers up such a great opportunity um an investment in r d opportunity and well for those of you that are the healthcare um peeps like myself then we'll get into what that looks like but i want to paint a broader picture first before we jump in too deep Yeah, I think right now is a really exciting time to be looking at space and investing in space. Just as a quick reminder, it's an industry that's existed for 50 to 60 years. We obviously had the Apollo moon landing. uh, We've had the International Space Station has been up for over 20 years. You know, spy satellites, GPS, communications, all provided via satellites. What's changed really in the last five to 10 years is it's just, it's an industry that has been totally disrupted uh, by so much so that we're calling it new space. Um, It's definitely led by startups. um, And there's a number of, and we we think right now it's such an exciting investment opportunity because those startups are the future market leaders in a rapidly expanding and rapidly disrupted space industry. There's a couple of things that happened to bring about that disruption. So first of all, the cost of launch has come way down. That's definitely been led by SpaceX. And it's also probably more importantly, from my point of view, become much more frequent. So before launches maybe happen once a year, you had big satellites going up and people were really terrified that if anything went went wrong with their satellite in space, they couldn't launch another satellite again Uh, anytime soon so they built these kind of perfect satellites that would never break um, and that made them really really expensive Uh, even if you could access space you had to ride along with another big satellite and that just was not a model for an industry to grow and commercialize so SpaceX and the rideshare model with some other companies like Spaceflight maybe worth a google of them have just made it way easier to access space 
because you're not as worried about your satellite failing in orbit, you can do things like use things like automotive parts. So parts from cars in your satellite and actually they're higher performing than the old parts. And that means that you have better performing satellites for cheaper, which is a great thing. And um, now people are launching more and more satellites. They're rather than having one one off really expensive satellite, they launch lots of satellites to get better coverage, more frequent imaging of a location on Earth. Um, and that again drives the costs down even further um, because it's just easier and cheaper to launch those satellites. So what that has meant is that everyone has taken advantage of that from high school students. There's high school student teams that have launched satellites to lots of new startups. And uh, that's coincided with an increasing demand for the need for space. Um, you can do more things with space. You know, companies are working on delivering communications direct to your phone from space. Uh, people are imaging the earth more often and they're using that for climate change information. So there's a lot of demand going up, costs going down, and that means that's a, generally a pretty good market to be involved in. Well, thank you for explaining that. And I guess I had a question that's related to this sort of reduced launch costs. I think you had referred to in a recent um, Generation Space podcast, this concept of the constellation model. And I guess I'm going to pivot on the question because one of the things that it sort of seems to me that could be a potential risk, and I know we'll get into the regulation, particularly regarding life sciences, but if you're putting all of this out there, you know, is, do we run the risk of this becoming just a big trash heap in space if there are all these, I'll say, quote, disposable, but I don't think you're quite saying disposable. But, you know, the more and more we put out there, I know space is a big place, but a lot of these are sort of near Earth orbit, I'm guessing. And so you do run the risk, right, at some point of maybe having it a little bit overly saturated or is that not a risk that we need to worry about? I think it's definitely an actually, it's an area of debate. Uh, some people argue it's a huge problem and some people, uh, possibly myself, argue it's much less of a problem. But just just for those who aren't, you know, space enthusiasts, uh, eventually the Earth will start to pull things in space in you know, the orbit around Earth back down towards the Earth. So near Earth, as you said, it's called low Earth orbit. Those things will be pulled down back towards the Earth and burn up in the atmosphere pretty quickly. Depending on your height, it could be a few months up to a maximum of 25 years. And the organization that regulates where you can go and they base it a lot on how quickly it'll be burned up in the atmosphere, is uh, in the US, it's the FCC. So they 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 determine who can launch, where you're going, and what safety uh, regulations you're taking, you're, what measures you're taking to make sure that you don't stay a space junk and cause a disruption consistently. Um, and they've changed the rules Recently, it used to be you could have 25 years before you had to deorbit, and now it's five years. So there's there's a lot of regulation going on here to make sure that people use space responsibly. At the end of the day, it's a huge area. You know, there's let's say 10,000 satellites in space. It is going up all the time, but you know, most satellites in low Earth orbit are the size of a washing machine or less. And if you could imagine 10,000 objects on Earth, you know, that's not that big a deal. All you need in general is for the satellites to be able to move to get out of the way of each other. And they're doing that pretty well. 
What is a concern in space is that when countries usually um, test out satellite weapons where they blow up satellites in space, uh, that generates what's called debris, so fragments from all the satellites. And those are really dangerous because they can't move to get out of the way. They're quite small. They're more difficult to track. And they're actually the biggest source of danger in space. So mostly now we're worried about satellites protecting themselves from those pieces of debris by being able to move out of the way. Um, but really, the satellites being a danger to other satellites is is not as big of a concern, to be honest. Well, I appreciate you explaining that. And that does make a lot of sense. Uh, and it's interesting that they do regulate on sort of the burn up time. I don't know, the child in me can only imagine. I don't know if you remember if you had it in the UK, but Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny and, you know, Wiley Coyote. I'm just thinking that big magnet and someone going up in space and holding that up and collecting all that debris. I do want to get into the the healthcare life sciences side of this. So I think probably a lot of people listening in are scratching their heads a little bit and saying, you know, I, I don't know if I get this, like, why would life sciences companies be up there? So maybe we could talk a little bit about which areas are the most promising. And then maybe we can also get into some companies that are starting to invest in space and what that means for them. Absolutely. Uh, so broadly speaking, there, you know, there are two fields of life sciences in space. There is life sciences in space, space medicine for, for basically for astronauts in space. You know, how do you look after, how do you provide healthcare for astronauts in space? Uh, that's one field. That's not an area that we would invest in because we just don't think there are going to be enough astronauts in space for it to be a venture scale business. More interesting from our point of view, and probably for most of your listeners, are you know life sciences, research in R&D, or manufacturing in space. So why would you do anything in space for life sciences? So space is a uniquely harsh environment. It's really stressful for people. It can cause adaptations in people, um, but also for biological material, for bacteria in space are one really important example. That stressful environment can cause the bacteria to change and change in a way they wouldn't on Earth. Uh, that has applications for synthetic biology. You can get these new bacteria strains. So that's that's one aspect. Probably a bigger avenue for you know life sciences, health life sciences, is that lots of materials behave differently in space, mostly because of the microgravity environment. You know, you're kind of floating in space. And that affects a lot of materials, in particular fluids, and, and can affect things like how proteins crystallize. And really, that has a lot of applications for organ growth in space or for related protein crystallization for adapting drug delivery in space. The hope is you can do the R&D to change the drug delivery in space, and you don't need to make anything in space long term, but you do the R&D in space and you apply it on Earth. So that's where we see as being a really, really interesting area. A lot of this research has already been done on the International Space Station, and there's a hope that we've got more space stations coming on board that are called free flyers and returns. So they're like independent satellites that will return to Earth, that will have more and more of this R&D and manufacturing in space in life sciences. Well, that makes sense. Can you name company names? Like, are there any large drug companies that you know of that are you know actively doing R&D? Yes, absolutely. 
So for major pharmaceutical companies, uh, Merck, Pfizer and AstraZeneca have all done uh, some research on the ISS, I believe. And Merck, I think, is the key example of really interesting research that's been done in space. So they have a monoclonal antibody drug, Keytruda, and they did uh, research related to altering its drug delivery in space. And that's been published in Nature Microgravity. That's probably the key um, journal for any of this kind of research. Um, most of their research seems to be life sciences. Well, thank you for that. Um, we talked earlier about regulation, and this was about sort of what gets launched and where, and I think you know what flight it can land at. In the whole world of life sciences and healthcare, obviously here on Earth, we have in the United States, we have the FDA, we have similar bodies, you know, around the world. What body is going to be the one that sort of regulates? Because, you know, when you do have this wild frontier and you have company or countries like Russia and China and others that sometimes don't always play by the same rules that UK and EMEA and the United States play by, um, talk a little bit about sort of who is overseeing this or who do you expect will oversee this so that if there are things like stem cell research or others, maybe even using artificial intelligence in space, you know, what types of bodies will be the ones that oversee that? So it's a really good question. And I think it's one that has not been totally resolved yet. And I think it depends on the kind of R&D that's going on. Uh, right now, as I said, a lot of the R&D that's going on is happening on the International Space Station. The Chinese actually also have their own space station and we have much more limited insight into what's going on there. But the International Space Station, that's the US, Europe, Japan, Canada, lots of other countries are all conducting research on the ISS all the time. And um, they, they have their own regulatory approval specifically to do things on the ISS. One of the key things they're concerned about is making sure it's a safe environment. There are astronauts in space that are all the time. So they're quite limited in some of the experiments they can do. You know, it's very challenging to impossible for them to use a furnace. Can't really use, you know, full strength alcohol. So there's things like that. So they're limited in what they can do. And that's primarily concerned with astronaut safety. And then general, you know, ethics approvals and things like that, um, that you might get in a normal academic environment. In terms of, you know, what happens if, you know, if you're doing R&D to alter a monoclonal antibody drug in space, uh, or what if you're doing R&D versus what if you're doing manufacturing, for, for example, manufacturing organoids in space? R&D, it seems like it's going to be more straightforward. I think it's going to be EMA or the FDA involved in that. And it seems like, you know, they're going to say, okay, you do the R&D in space and then you just come back and just do your standard trials on Earth. You know, we're not going to have more onerous trials. We're not going to have less onerous trials. It's the same trials. So for a new drug, it's a full new um new clinical trial if it's for changing a drug slightly it's a different trial i think where it gets potentially really challenging and this has not been resolved is in manufacturing um it's my understanding that good manufacturing principles um would apply and i think in general that seems to involve an in-person visit of the manufacturing facility and i think a lot of people are like well how is that going to work out uh for space um so i think that's an area that needs a lot of work to see what can be done there. So one of the things I think people would love to know is 
and this is a slight variation on another question I had teed up to you, but are there any startups, particularly those that you're investing in, that right now are working in the healthcare or life sciences space, either on the R&D or the manufacturing side that people might want to keep an eye on, or maybe if they wanted to have some conversations, they could have some conversations with? Oh, absolutely. So we consider this a key area for for us to invest in. We see space life sciences as being a key new area uh, that's at a good stage for investment. You know, the basic science has been done um, and we think that the leaders of tomorrow are kind of being picked now and we want to be involved there. We haven't made any investments directly yet in in any of those companies, but I'll talk about a few that I think are pretty interesting. They're looking at different aspects. What we would consider our first investment in the area is that we invested in one of the private space station companies, Voyager Space. So people might not know, there's about five new private space stations planned to replace the ISS. A lot of them, in particular Voyager, want to be a better place to do life sciences R&D in particular than the ISS. They want to offer more privacy for pharmaceutical companies. They want to offer faster turnaround times. They want to be able to do maybe some more dangerous uh, experiments so that they, you know, you can do better R&D. And Voyager is building a science park on Earth to make it easier for researchers to plan their experiments and get the best out of their time um, in space. So that's the first one. Uh, I think three companies, quite early stage startups that are each doing something quite different. So uh, the first one is Space Pharma. This is an Israeli company. And they're what we call a service provider. They've been helping companies and researchers do science in space for over 10 years. So they design special hardware that works in space to allow you to do your your science in space. And they've developed a lot of expertise in how you do science in space. And uh, and now they're, they're productizing and focused on monoclonal antibodies. They're taking advantage of some of the changes in in protein crystallization to alter drug delivery in space. So that's one of the areas. Uh, the next one is Yuri, which is, um, again, one of the service providers, but they're focused instead on synthetic biology. They're focused on those microbes that change in space, and you can use these different bacteria to Im- improve chemical processes. So that, I think, is another really interesting company. And the third company is Prometheus. This is a Swiss startup spun out of the University of Zurich, and they're growing organoids in space and actually, um, and hopefully eventually, uh, organs in space. But organoids initially uh, will be used for drug testing. So they're taking advantage of the changes in the FDA drug testing rules, um, combining that with their, their own innovations and organoid development. They can get a much higher yield in space than on Earth. So three very different companies that I think that are all doing something quite interesting. Well, th- those are very prescriptive. So thank you for sharing that. And I love how you broke that out. And I guess this related question, and we've talked a little bit about some of this, but you know, looking out over the next five to 10 years, what do those look like? And you know, are we going to see across those five or 10 years, major traction in life sciences you know, sooner rather than later, or are they closer to that longer term horizon? So I think the general feeling in space is that 
there's lots of R&D and manufacturing that can be done in space, but actually that life sciences is the nearest term opportunity. Why do we think that? Because it's already been done on the ISS and they're, they've run out of capacity. You know, the, people want to do more research than they actually can. Uh, and there seem to be near-term opportunities for deploying it at the price point that's available uh, with what's available. So I think that's, a really exciting opportunity. What seems to be a big problem for life sciences and for R&D that, that could potentially slow down that market developing is that right now it takes too long to get your experiment up to the ISS, completed, results back down, and let's say do another cycle. Uh, that takes right now about 18 to 20, 24 months. And speaking to those in the industry, it really needs to be three to six months for pharmaceutical uh, development timelines. So that's something that needs to be resolved. There's a lot of different ways of skinning that cat. You could increase, you know, the number of launches to and from the ISS. There's some companies looking at that. There's exploration company wants to, you know, uh, SpaceX is the only provider right now. There's a lot of providers such as Dream Chaser Ex Exploration Company who are all trying to remove that bottleneck. You can have more space stations. You can have what, are, what I mentioned earlier, free flyers and returns. So you don't need humans to perform your experiments. If you can do automated experiments, you can just have an independent satellite that gets launched and that gets returned to Earth. Lots of different companies looking at that. So if, if that's resolved, and crucially, if more and more of the life sciences community realizes that it's possible to do things in space and the benefits it can bring, the hope is that this could be a multi-billion dollar market quite quickly. Well, that's interesting. And um, I like the framing of that three to six months, right, is the target versus the 18 to 24 months. And I can see that, you know, that would be a barrier, but really opening the gate here. So thank you for all that for, by way of background. This is the point where in the interview, I do like to drill down into a couple more personal questions. And they're very open-ended, and I'm going to modify the second one because I think you'll appreciate where I'm going to go with this. But the first one, and I started asking this during the pandemic just because I think we all kind of needed a wish. Um, could be personal, could be professional, or both. If you had one wish, what would it be and why? Uh, I'd probably stick with professional. So it's not very subtle in the context of the podcast, but I really, I really do hope that people – hopefully you're listening to the podcast or just broader in the life sciences community, realize that, you know, space, it's not that hard to do something in space right now. You know, it's becoming easier all the time. There are lots of companies that you can go to them and you're like, I've got this idea of something I need to do in space, but I don't know anything about space. And they will do that for you very, very easily. High school students are launching things to space. So space is totally achievable. It's affordable. And on the basis of that, what can you do with that microgravity environment to, you know, improve life sciences, uh, do better or indeed do things that was not achievable on Earth? So that's my um, very shameless plug. <laughs> that's OK. It's part of why we're here, because we want to open new doors for folks. And so and I'm assuming like if people wanted to, not that we're going to have thousands of people, but, um, you know, if if folks have questions, are you someone I can send their way or or can I send some of them your way, I should say? Absolutely. I mean, I really, uh, the great thing about working at Seraphim, we're an international investor. I get to meet everyone in the space industry, but I always want to meet people in the life sciences industry. So, Awesome. Well, we, 
We will hold you to that. And I appreciate that. <laughs> My last question is more of a gratuitous fun one. And I usually ask about a deserted island, but I, since we've talked so much about like space stations, imagine you're stranded in space in a uh, space station and you have the ability to take one album with you so that you could listen to while you're, you know, jogging in a anti-gravity uh, field, which album would you pick? I'm, I'm glad you clarified the jogging because I was like, oh no, um, if you're trapped in a small environment rather than a desert island. But yes, you're right. You do have a treadmill in space. Um, and interestingly, they have to negotiate hard to get that treadmill up into space. They know that astronauts need uh, the exercise, but you know they're very limited in what they can bring. So you know, you're sacrificing some water and you're sacrificing some food to get that treadmill. So I take advantage of the treadmill. Um, and I would listen to um, an album I listen to a lot when kind of doing long distance road trips and I need the energy. It's uh, Your Queen is a Reptile by Sons of Kemet. It's kind of a very, very bouncy, dancey jazz uh, jazz band from London. It's really good fun. Well, I love that thorough answer. And I can honestly say <laughs> out of the 200 plus episodes we've done, no one is... Uh, chosen that album or that band and so it's always fun to have some uh, unique choices and uh with that we will wrap up and i will say thank you this is aaron strout i am the chief marketing officer and host of the real chemistry podcast we have been joined by maureen haverty who's the vp of investment at seraphim space also called generation space here in the united states maureen thank you so much for giving us all this detailed information and helping us take a step forward uh, you know, as people start to think about this new frontier. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me, Erin. Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.